Thanks a lot for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. It's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. For this extra flashy episode, I sat down with a guy that proves that you definitely should not judge a book by its cover. Dayton filmmaker Henrico Cuto is like a Rubik's Cube within a Rubik's Cube. I'll let that one sit for a minute. He's a guy who wears Hawaiian shirts and crazy pants and rocks an impressive Salvador Dali stash. <laughs> and besides that, he literally packs heat. Henrico took me to the range to shoot his AK-47 after I mentioned on Facebook that I just didn't get the appeal of guns. I wrote about the experience for my Dayton Daily News column. Guns are definitely not for me, but you know what, I get it now. Henrico's films have a loyal fan base, and he has a, quite a bit of them. 16 horror films, romantic comedies, and even a feminist western in there. We talk about all those things. Henrico has garnered attention locally and internationally. The high school dropout and self-proclaimed mama's boy, boy does he love his mama Karen, has figured out how to survive as an independent filmmaker and despite a childhood in which he says he was spit on and pounded on by classmates and the occasional teacher. Did I mention that he loves his mama? He does. And he also has quite a bit of hustle in that blood of his. Join Cox Digital Marketing, this region's advertising experts, in being a sponsor for this podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get the podcasts that you just love the most. Now on with that chat with Henrico, but just an FYI first. He gets sort of um French at one point during our talk, but it's not a big deal. We can take it. We're all grown-ups here. So, Henrico, what happened was... What had happened was that white boy with the weird pants. I got to do, do it again. That's too embarrassing. Also, it's not necessarily fair. That Hispanic weirdo. But uh, what had happened was he made it even with those pants on. <laughs> Although I can make it with them off, too. Well, that's what she said. <laughs> You ready to go? I am. I'm like lunch meat. I'm always ready. You're born ready is what they say. <laughs> like a lunch meat. My like mama used to say meat. I was born drunk, but born ready sounds way nicer. Born drunk. <laughs> That's something different. That's the thing we probably well, don't want to. Well, I've never, I've never had a. born drunk. I've never had a taste of alcohol in my life and uh, I've never done a recreational drug. Uh, and that was my mother's response to that was like, well, you were born drunk. So there you have there it. There you have it. <laughs> so you haven't ever done an alcohol or a drug before? I've never done an alcohol or drug. But you, you seem like you would have it all the movies you make. I know, right? I know. <laughs> oh, it's, that's that's like the best. Uh, the dichotomy is so fascinating. I remember once I got hired years and years ago. It never came to fruition, but I got hired to do like a, a pot stoner comedy, uh-huh. and I was writing it. And uh, one of my filmmaking friends at the time was like, "How can you write a movie about marijuana if you never smoke marijuana?" And I was like, "Dude, how can you write a movie about werewolves if you never fucking oh my gosh shot a silver bullet?" <laughs> <laughs> It's pardon, called imagination. Well, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I will do better from here on out. It's just I just was quoting myself from the past. Just thinking about the ensemble here. Let's talk about this ensemble. <laughs> yes. Did you dress up special for me? Well, every day I dress up special for you oh, in a way. Thank but you. um I mean this is how well, you roll. My, this is how I roll is you the best. You got your sleepy pants on, you got well, your um, These are not just any sleeping pants. Every pair of wild pants I wear were made custom by my mother. So Get these out aren't here. so these aren't just jammy pants. These Wait are. Wait a minute, your mom made the pants. My for you? mom made the pants. Huh? Yeah. Was she a seamstress or? Uh, no. You know, she actually only took up sewing like six or seven years so ago. So she could make you sleepy so pants. So she could make me awesome <laughs> pants. But uh, they were never for sleeping, and they were always for uh, for party for, okay. for, for for the life. Because because sleeping pants, I would wear something soft. This fabric is strictly for fashion, not for comfort. So and you have like what? What is on there? Like um, bananas? These are mustaches. Mustaches. Tons yeah. of, my mother picks the fabric. She'll text message me a picture of fabric uh-huh. and just be like, "Good." And I'm like, "Mom." You are one of the best enablers I've ever known. <laughs> They're perfect. And she's from here, right? Is she around here? Uh, she's originally from Hazard, Kentucky. You don't get oh. much much more Kentucky than Hazard. But yeah, Boone came, County, Kentucky, right? Yeah. Uh, but then she came up in, her younger years were more so in Farmersville. Okay. So she went to like Valley View and, and all that. Dayton area. 
for most of her life, with brief stops in New Hampshire and Illinois. You're from here originally. Originally from here. So I guess I should tell people that you're a filmmaker, right? Yes, yes. But you don't do romantic comedies. Well, so I, ha- you I did do a romantic did, comedy. I actually did do a romantic yeah, comedy. Yeah, most of your stuff is like horror stuff, right? Um, you know, I did is that the, true? I no. did the math recently. It's about 60% horror and then 40% everything else. So, I mean, I've done uh, horror movies like Babysitter Massacre, Haunted House and Sorority Row, Alone in the Ghost House, Amityville No Escape. But then I've also done a romantic comedy called Making Out. I've done uh-huh. a, a drama called Nothing Good Ever Happens. I've done a family movie called A Bulldog for Christmas about a girl getting turned into a talking dog oh, to learn the meaning of Christmas. But you never wear a bulldog, so how are you going to know? I, you know, exactly. <laughs> how are you going to know what that's like? You that's can't write that story. That's a callback right there. Yeah, I'm going to uh, call the PETA and tell them that you can't write that story. I was never truly a bulldog. I mean, I did bulldog. overeat a lot. But that was, you know, and that was to, to prep. Did you snort and like drool? Yeah, like, yeah I, I, I do that all the time, I mean, too. Um, and then I did a Western called Calamity Jane's Revenge, which okay. is one of the one. very few feminist Westerns to ever exist. Really? Um, when I went to make it, the uh, people, I, I talked to some people about financing it. They said, pick a name that people know. I think they were thinking Wyatt Earp or they were thinking Jesse James. And I immediately thought Calamity Jane because I really wanted to work with Aaron R. Ryan, a local actress that I work with a lot. I was like, the only way this Western is going to work is if I can cast Aaron Ryan as the lead. So I was like, well, Calamity Jane. We did Calamity Jane's Revenge. I was told by the investors, like, well, we're never, you're never going to be able to sell a Western fronted by a woman. I don't know if I was on a high horse, pardon the pun, or if I was just uh, ha, ha, ha. stupid. Uh-huh. It could have been stupidity. Anytime, by the way, that I mentioned some incredible business move, I may have just been being an idiot. But I said, you know what, then I don't need your stupid money. I put my life savings into the movie instead. And it turned out very well. It's been released all over the world. Oh, nice. Uh, Calamity James Revenge is the most world saturated film I have next to A Bulldog for Christmas which was another movie people told me I was crazy to make. Bulldog did television in England. It's been released in France. It's been released... Uh, but in, it's like, in is it in different languages then? Or yeah. is it? I actually have the French dubbed version. Get out of um, here. In France, it was released on the... I don't know the French title, a way to say it, but it was released under The Magical Christmas. Oh. But in England, it was A Bulldog for Christmas and it played the Sony Movie Network around Christmas time. It still does. So it's probably like, we like teeny teeny. It was like, le, le Noel Incredible or something. Oh man, if anybody listening is French, they have a nosebleed now. Yeah, they're totally like um, offended on every level. I barely speak Spanish, let alone French. Calamity Jane's Revenge did Brazil. So I've watched it dubbed in Portuguese. It's done China, which mm-hmm. was its, its biggest releases. China really? next to America was China, Thailand, South Korea, a couple others. And it's still out there getting sold to other markets. It's funny, though, because it's made back its investment massively, but it was my entire life saving. Now, for an independent filmmaker, that's not that much money. But when it's all the money you have, I remember every day getting on set and going like, we sure got to make our day because I... Uh, there's no more. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, it. That's like, all we got. Yeah, if we need another day, I got to work at the Orange Julius or oh, yeah, something. Or go down to know. the blood bank and yeah. get the plasma center or whatever. I, I started my career doing that. I sold uh, at Talacris on Salem. I sold plasma twice a week and used that money to, to put out a music album. That was one of the first... Uh, what was the music album like? I still occasionally dabble, but I released two albums of ukulele rock and roll. Get out of here. For real. One album called Euchre Consequences and one album called That's Loud. They're on iTunes. and Okay, so how the heck did you get into ukulele rock and roll? Well, uh, like anyone would. I was a classically trained violinist. (laughs) Like anyone, like like regular people. I loved playing guitar and and stuff like that, but I I never felt like I was really expressing myself. And then one day I bought a ukulele for like 25 bucks and I found that I could play like Mojo Nixon songs on the ukulele and Mm -hmm. have a lot of fun. So all of a sudden I was having a really great time playing music and then all of a sudden I could play and sing so before you knew it I was playing shows and in the Dayton area I was very lucky to have some really great talented musician friends in the area like uh, Paige Beller uh, Mariah Yucks of Jasper the Colossal fame and Paige Beller from Paige and the Bel Airs and lots of other bands I mean Paige is incredibly prolific but they were the ones who took me seriously everybody else was just kind of like this guy with his ukulele and his Hawaiian shirt I don't know and he's singing songs about like you know Mojo Nixon songs like what is that um, but they were the ones who were like, no, play shows with us. And they, they were the ones who kind of gave me. So was it like comedy? Some of the songs were funny. Okay. You know, I did songs like Miley Cyrus is pregnant with my two headed love child and a song called drunk girl, which was like the anthem of what it's like to be hit on by a drunk woman when you're sober. But then I also and did what some, is that like, it's, it's <laughs> incredibly insulting. If you've been like, when I wrote these songs, most of this stuff was from my early twenties. I'm 31 now. So this stuff was when I was in my early twenties. So a lot of the songs were pretty angsty. I was pretty, you know, you know, you're 20, you don't have any money. You don't know what you're doing with yourself you're, you're mad 
So I was like, uh, so like, you know, you, I, I remember in my younger years being at a party and being like, oh, wow, this girl's kind of chatting me up. This feels nice. And then I'd be like, oh, wait, no, she is wasted. Yeah, yes. and, and I have trouble empathizing with people who are drunk because I've never been drunk. Right. So I do have to like kind of go like, what is your eyes are kind of red and you're really handsy. I don't think it's that I'm charming. I think it's that, you know, you're drunk. Now, of course, I know when I'm charming, which is when I'm awake. All the time. Every minute. Yeah. I mean, even when I'm asleep, I think, you know. Yeah, I've, I've had women say, like, I just can't stop looking at you when you're asleep. And I'm like, it must be nice when the, the noise out of my mouth stops. You know? <laughs> I once was on a date where a woman kissed me and said that it was just to see if I could stop talking. So. Get out of here. I mean, she was cool. She was she was being funny. and it was. But it that's was a delightful. funny. I'm going to use that to my husband. You like, should. Yeah. Like, it's just so nice to hear nothing but the, the lip smacking. is so much quieter <laughs> than the other lip smacking. You know, that you make. Give it a break, uh, right? Exactly. Yeah. Give it a rest. So, I mean, I, I put out some music albums while I was kind of figuring things out because I needed to. It was like, you know, drawing the poison out. At that point, I mean, I was like 22 or whatever. I'd made about three features because at this exact moment, mm -hmm. as you and I are speaking, I've directed uh, 16 features. But if you count produced and directed, I'm at almost 30. Really? Or, uh, almost 20, rather. And you started at what age? 20? I started at 18. My first feature length movie was a film called Marty Jenkins and the Vampire Bitches which was a comedy. Um, Sounds hilarious. It, you know, it, Vampire it, bitches, yeah. And it really um, makes Dayton front and center. I love the idea that like monsters were coming and they were going to take Dayton. I made that film and then on the tail end of that movie, I got a job on the East Coast working for a distributor label called Alternative Cinema Pop Cinema, which I still do tons of business with to this day. So I went out there and I worked with them for about three years. And then when I came back, that was when I was selling plasma and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I'd made another movie in the interim called Faces of Schlock, which was an anthology I'd done with other filmmakers. But you had already at this point known that you wanted to do film. Oh yeah, I actually had been making little movies in my backyard from the time I was 12 until you know, I was an adult. I'm actually releasing a collection of all of the films I made as a teenager called Henrik Kuto's Backyard Legacy. It's one Blu-ray, <laughs> one Blu-ray, and it has over six hours. I cranked out so many movies in the backyard with my friends. Six hours? Six hours, over six hours. It's like going to film school with me. You get to see how bad I was, how I progressed, presented in order. So that, it's like, at first, it's like some stupid stick figure people. And oh now. my gosh, yeah. It, yeah, or, yeah. or like, uh, you know, me filming just to film mm -hmm. stuff. So, and I'll, I'll just mention to get the plug out of the way, if you go to Henflix, H-E-N-F-L-I-X.com, you can find it. That's the first time ever that my like early, early movies have been available since they originally were. Because I would go out in my backyard in a weekend and I would make like a, 30 minute movie with my friends where we were just throwing blood at each other and being goofy and and whatever and then i would make a uh, a cover and i would print out the sleeves and i would dumpster wow. dive blockbuster i would dumpster dive blockbuster and get their old cases and i would stuff the sleeves and i'd burn the discs and i'd sell them at my high school and i actually really? got in trouble for doing that uh oh. they were like you're not supposed to be selling things here and that's when i was like you know maybe school isn't for me which high school did you go to i went to west Carrollton. okay did you graduate no Oh, oh, no didn't. way, Jose. So what happened that you didn't graduate? Um, well, it's a combination of things. Henrico will tell us why he didn't graduate in just a minute. But first, I got two really great people in here today. I got Justin and Kate from Equitas. How you guys doing? Great, thank you. Good. So what is Equitas for people who don't know about it? Equitas Health, we are formerly a resource center of Ohio. We are an AIDS service organization and a community-based healthcare system providing comprehensive and affirming care for the LGBTQ community as well as the medically underserved. And why is that important? Well, it's important because the healthcare that we have uh, really across our nation, there, there are gaps in the system. And so we focus very much on the HIV AIDS needs of our communities, um, as well as those who are medically underserved and that they don't have access because of health insurance or you know other comprehensive needs that they have. They need an integrated care model that we can provide. So Justin, how can people help out if they're interested? Yeah, so we have special events throughout the year that people can come and volunteer to help get set up for, to help run those. Our prevention and education department does a lot of like stuffing safer sex kits. So the little bags of condoms that they give out in the community, those don't make themselves. So people can get involved <laughs> that way. Um, people can come in and if you are a filing person, you can help our finance people get stuff done. So there are a lot of ways to get involved. There is like a volunteer link on our website, which we can get to you. And I'd say that'd be like your first introduction and then reach out to us to see like what you're looking to do to help. And then we can get you matched up with the right groups of people. You guys have some really great fun events that you throw on. What are those like? Yeah, Masquerade is, it's definitely the closest event. 
it's a giant Halloween party. So much fun. <laughs> um, it is so much fun to attend and to plan dancing performances by the Ruby Girls and other entertainment, depending on kind of the year and what's going on. This year, we're really excited. We're going to be using this really great space, the Dayton Transportation Center, the former Jillies, yes, and the former Bus Depot. We're going back to our roots. It's going to be kind of a gritty door party. And our theme this year, Rio Nights, really allows us to kind of get wild and crazy and let our hair down and really celebrate the community and the great work we do. So I feel like it's going to be really, really naked this year. That's what I feel like. That's the thing. You know, the really, we talk about it. Um, <laughs> you know, the only thing that's required, I mean, besides buying a ticket for Masquerade, is you have to wear a mask. And there are definitely people who take that to the T, like to the key um, phrase there. And yeah, we've definitely got some body paint folks and some some people who come in very elaborate costumes, but we see a lot of different stuff. So if people want to find out more about you guys, how can they find um, Equitas? Well, we're pretty much on all of the different social media channels. So if you're, you're a Twitter or uh, Instagram or Facebook user, we have handles on all of those. We also have handles on most of those platforms for the different events we have. So if you have a real interest in Masquerade, you can follow that specifically. And there's always Equitas Health all right so people figure it out get your costumes ready and go to masquerade and check out equitas we'll see you there thanks a lot guys thank, thank you. you number one as funny as this sounds because i was always like a prodigy as a kid like i mean because i was always making movies and stuff mm-hmm. i mean i cranked out over six hours of stuff apparently right. before i was an adult i the moment they said you can't sell your movies here i was like then why am i even here Really? Like, yeah. Cause You're like, like, this is where I'm going to sell. This yeah. is my consumer is I'm going to sell movies to. I was right? a, a born capitalist, born with the hustle in my blood. And I got that from my mother. My mother, my mother was a person who we came from very humble beginnings. And my mother was the one who was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm just going to go sell Mary Kay or mm-hmm. sell Tupperware or sell lawn furniture. And I'm going to get enough money. I'm going to buy a house and we're going to be things are going to be better than when I was growing up. That was my mother's attitude from as far back as I can remember. And I have that same attitude where I'm like, you know, no, I'm going to go hustle. I'm going right. to go find success. My mother's very successful now. What does uh, she extremely. do? My mother works for Reynolds and Reynolds. Okay. And she's been there for 30 years and she kicks butt, takes names. Grinding uh, it out. I, you know, I could go on forever, so I'm going to keep it brief, but I will just say that when I go and have lunch, I try to, I'm a mama's boy, always have been. I try I to have tell, lunch with my mother. I not tell. This is like the fourth time you mentioned your mom. <laughs> right. I try to have lunch with my mom like once every week at, you know, minimum. And uh, when she tells me stories, she's a, a woman of 60 and a uh, firecracker. And when she tells me stories about like dealing with these corporate type guys who are like former Marines that are six foot four and she just looks them right in the face and goes, well... Um, I'm in charge of this, so we're doing this this my way. <laughs> I am so proud of her. I mean, she is just the coolest, and she is who I want to be when I grow up. Aww. You know, I, I, I do. It's funny because my mother will be like, "You have such you have such good public speaking abilities. You have su- you have such good people skills. Uh-huh. I don't know where you get them from. It must be from your father." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's not from." The incredibly successful woman who navigated corporate America when it was hostile toward women. Right. Couldn't, couldn't be have from been her. couldn't have been you with your absolute lack of fear that I could tell. And you didn't even notice that at all, right? No, no, no. no. Why it would didn't, you notice? It didn't imprint on every part of my being, you know? <laughs> Are you the only child or is there uh, more? No, I, I'm the only child in that I only have half siblings. Okay. Uh, I have a sister who's nine years older than me, so she was around but then she wasn't anymore. And then I have younger siblings on my father's side, but they're all in New Hampshire. So for the most part, I got a lot of the only child experience. Yeah, they say like that after like I think eight years or seven years or something like that. If you're seven years apart, you're an only child. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it was kind of that experience. And I was also lucky because, you know, my mother had me older. My mother had me in her 30s. She was done with the stru- a lot of the struggles. She was done with a lot of that. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that, you know, I got to see our rise to, to better things. We got to, you know, live in the suburbs and... Right. Have some nice things. And she knew who she was at this point and all exactly. this other stuff. Yeah. You know, and she was always boss. She was always mm-hmm. boss and Nova. You know, one of the things she always tries to tell me whenever I'm worried because, you know, this is my full-time job and there's a lot of, of soul-searching and worry and concern. And my mother always tells me, like, well, if it makes you feel any better, you're 31 and I didn't even figure out what I was good at until I was 42 or 43. And then I'm like, oh, wow, that makes, makes me feel, feel a lot better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my mm-hmm. mother found out, you know, she was a project manager and she was, you know, that she had the skill set. And the funny thing is, I remember when I moved back to Ohio from New Jersey, I sat with my mother having lunch and I was listening to her tell me about her day. And all of a sudden I realized we had almost the same job. Really? Man- managing people, putting uh-huh. out fires, solving problems and solving problems with no time. Back against the wall, figure it out. 
and we both thrive in that. Right. You know, I thrive very well in that. Because you, when you're making a movie, it's, you know, we have X amount of scenes or shots that we have to get done in a day, and you're like, well, but it's raining, and it's like, well, figure it out. Right, you, you know, gotta like, figure out around that trench. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and you may have 15 minutes tops to figure out how it's an entire day's worth of work is gonna be saved. I don't think I've ever not made my day. And mm-hmm. if I have, it was so rare I don't remember it. Or I blocked it out like, you know, like it was my Vietnam. Whichever way you want to take it. <laughs> so, so you didn't graduate high school? No, I dropped out at 16. I did a, I did what I would call a soft dropout. <laughs> uh, now, I had had trouble. What is a soft dropout? Well, I had had trouble with the faculty. I was heavily bullied in school. Okay. But then as I got older, the bullying started to come from the faculty as well. Because I was a weird kid. I would have graduated in 05. So this okay. was the era of post-Columbine. And schools were very, not just West Carrollton schools, although I'll be happy to throw them under the bus as hard as I can anytime I want. I'm not a huge fan, <laughs> but I, it's tell. been a long mm-hmm. time to keep it very vague. I had a family member have a very bad experience with them pretty recently that made me go, yeah, it doesn't sound like much has changed. The faculty would start to give me hassles for wearing weird clothes or whatever, but I had a perfect record. Like I had no detentions, no suspensions, no in-school suspensions, Mm -hmm. no nothing. They'd call my mother in and my mother would show up and just be like, what are you people talking about? Like my son hasn't done anything. Like you may, you're wasting all of our time. I'm taking him home right now. Right. You know, and so that he can go home and be rewarded. I'm going to buy him ice cream and let him watch movies because... You guys are the problem, not my son. And God love her. Uh, What happened, though, was my mother wanted me to have an education because she always wanted great things for me. So my mother wanted me to continue my curriculum in homeschooling. And I just couldn't do it because if I was home, all I did was make movies. Eventually, it it turned into not quite homeschooling and more so being a dropout. Okay. Um, I just never got the GED or anything, and I never needed it. So, um, And at this juncture, at 31, I'm pretty certain... I'm never ever gonna need it. If really? I didn't, if I didn't need it before, why would I need it now? I don't know. Just for yourself, maybe. I to me, it's just a piece of paper the government gives you, right, and okay. I have no respect for any piece of paper the government gives you. So that's a whole other conversation for another time. But like, it's actually been really clear to me. Like, I was sitting in class. I was 16 years old, which meant I was old enough to drop out, and it was right at the end of my sophomore year. And all of a sudden, I went, "Wait a second, why am I still here? Oh yeah, because the teachers." And the faculty, these people have all told me how important it is that I get my high wow, school diploma. that's interesting. And then I went, wait, so a bunch of people that I, I don't even respect are the reason I'm here? Like, because they think I should be here? No way. I was like, mom, I I'm not going back. I hate it there. It made me depressed. It made me miserable to be in school. You know, I hate sitting at desks. And was the bullying part, was it just because you dressed differently or? Yeah, but the irony is that the bullying was really like elementary and middle school. In high school, I became kind of cool because I was I was way out there. So then all of a sudden, people kind of wanted to be a part of it a little bit. I mean, I was still bullied a lot. But in middle school, kids were like opening doors into my head and really? shoving me downstairs and spitting on me on the bus. And So were you getting into fights constantly then? Uh, no, because I wouldn't fight back. Um, mm-hmm. I was very much uh, my entire life inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King, I suppose. I, I believed that if I just let him pound on me, anybody who was observing would be like, this isn't right. This guy doesn't want to fight. And I was somewhat right. So they would stop after a while? Or um, no? Most, I mean, they would stop that beating. <laughs> the, subsequent, <laughs> the subsequent beatings may or may not occur later. And in hindsight, I don't even feel bad for me. People always say, like, you know, well, that's really brave that you, like, took those beatings. And I was like, yeah, but with a hint of narcissism. Because in my mind, I was like, I'm right. If I just cut my hair and wear normal clothes, I wouldn't get beat up. So it's like a but protest right. almost. I, well, I just really believed I was right. Right. You know, uh, which which I can only ascribe to a level of narcissism that is uh, worthy of diagnosis, but has not been diagnosed. <laughs> but in hindsight, I don't feel bad for me. I feel bad for my mother because I can't. She knew she had to know. Like when I would like go to school in a Star Trek uniform or go to school looking like a maniac or whatever, or grow my hair out really long. She had to know, like as she sent me off in that school bus, like. He's going to have a rough time. He's going to be kicked in the butt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but you know what? She always believed I should do what I wanted to do. And so she let me. The majority of my memories of school are like coming home from school and getting the crying out of the way before mom got home from work. Aww. Well, because I didn't want her to go through that. Right. You know? Like, I just needed to get it out of my system, you know? I mean, because, I mean, literally, you would... There, there comes a point where, you know, every day you'd come home from school and your backpack was covered in spit. Because the kids would be spitting on my back and I didn't know it. And I would just sit there and I would wipe off my backpack and I'd listen to I'd listen to music and you know, I'd listen to Ice T because Ice T would tell me f the haters and I was like I do believe you Ice T 
I F do, the in haters. fact, hate them. Oh yeah, my gosh. Yeah, F them, yeah. I, my entire life changed when I first heard Ice T. Because I didn't identify with, like, I had a culture shock. I went from living in kind of like a pretty rough area to a nice area mm -hmm. right when I was like 10. Everything the kids around me, I didn't identify with them. They all grew up in the nice area. And I grew up in a rougher area. So when I heard Ice T sing about like being poor, being different, whatever, you know, being hassled, I was like, this guy. He gets you. He, like, finally. So, and, and I was angry. You know, you're a young man. You're angry. Right. So I'd listen to like body count and I'd be like, yeah, F the police. Yeah, F the racist. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's fight. Except then I would never fight. <laughs> so know, it was kind of like uh, F2 because they wanted you to fight and you didn't do it. So, exa yeah. Exactly. So it was like, you know, in, in spirit, Malcolm X, but in heart, Martin Luther King, you know, because <laughs> I, I didn't want to fight. And I, I mean, to this day, I don't like a fight at all. Of course, so I chose a job where I have to like viciously negotiate and right. like, argue and stuff. So did your mom show up in any of your movies at all? You think? Or uh, your not when I was a kid. She hates having her photo taken i mean like not just necessarily her but like oh my traits everything of her. Yeah. every every single movie even mm. the ones i didn't write there's a scene in nothing good ever happens which was kind of one of my my proudest moments making that movie because it was a very personal movie there's a scene where the main character he's trying to decide if he should go on a road trip somewhere for a very emotional reason and his mother's like why not like what could happen and he's his, the character's me. He's like an artist who's self-sufficient, makes money doing art, and is 30. So he's like, then I guess I will. And then his mom's like, you know, snap the finger. She's like pulling out a $20 bill and she's like, we'll take this. And he's like, I don't need, I don't need any money for the trip. And she's like, I just want to know that you're going to have a good dinner while you're gone. Aww. So take the money. That's my mother. I mean, no matter what I do, she's always going to be like, like I just went to um, the drive-in fest, uh, VHS drive-in fest in uh, Mahoning, Pennsylvania. I appeared there as a guest and it was super fun. And like right before I left to go do it, my mother was like, you know, was like trying to hand me a $20 bill and be like, <laughs> and be like, I want to know that you're going to have at least one great dinner. And you can't not. Right. I mean, my mother's literal attitude is like, I know where you bank. If you don't take this $20 bill, I'm going to go gonna to your bank and bank. I'm going to deposit yeah. it in your checking account. I won't even tell you. You'll never know. See, I've had fights with my mother at the cash register. Yeah. I'm like way old enough to have my own life, lady. She's like, no, I'm paying for it. And, you know, you just give in. Yeah, well. Uh, like we wrestled over oh, yeah. checks many a times. Yeah. Were you a fan of Pendulette from Penn & Teller? Yes. Uh, uh, I read, uh, I can't remember which one of his books it was that it was in, uh, but he was telling the story about how like he had a, sh it was, he was 35 or 36. He had a show off Broadway. He was appearing on Saturday Night Live. He was making six figures easily. Right. He had an apartment that he owned in New York City. I mean, he's doing incredibly well. He went up to Greenfield, Massachusetts, where he's from, to visit his parents. And it was uh, county fair time. And he was like, oh my God, you know, because he grew up in, in Greenfield. Like the county fair is it. So he went there with his dad and they were like walking around and his dad hands him $5 and goes and says, you know, go get yourself a candied apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, dad, I'll get the candied apple. And he's like, no, because I'm the father and you're the son. Yeah. So here's $5. Get the candied apple. <laughs> and he was like, and he was like, at that moment, I realized no matter what happens, no matter how much money you make. Gonna be your father till the day you die. And get the candy apple, right? Mm -hmm. Just get, and the, get candy. the candy apple. And it so. takes a long time because I used to actually sort of resent my mother for doing the whole like, I'll pay for your groceries. Like, yeah. I'm a grown woman, I could pay for my own groceries. When you're like a starving artist for right. a long time, because there was a time when like that was the only treat you ever got. Right. You know, like I remember a time making these movies and being really, really broke. And like, I would get a Wendy's hamburger when my mom gave me $10, Aww. you know, and I'm 25. Right. You know? If people want to know the kind of sacrifices you have to make two years ago, when I was 29 years old, I bought my first bed. I slept on the floor for 10 years. And then I slept on a couch in my bedroom for three years. I believed that a bed was a frivolous expense. Really? I did. Did you fundamentally believe that? Yeah. Why did you believe that? Because I'm crazy. I mean, I'm not well. Uh, well, I mean, you admitted it earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Something's up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, we are all built in a certain way. So like, I grew up in a household where I never wanted for much. No matter how broke we were when I was younger, my mother would always rob Peter to pay Paul. That was right. her saying. And My first camcorder I got when I was 12 years old was on layaway at Walmart. And we, really? and we paid that sucker off because mom knew how important it was to me. And she'd worked her butt off and we slowly had more. She listens to this. I don't know how comfortable she is going to be with me talking about like the, the harder days. But I'm gonna because right. they, they fill me with joy. Mm -hmm. um, they make you who you are, right? Never forget your exactly. past is what I well, say. My mother says 
that I'm the tightest human being she's ever met. <laughs> like, she's like, I, I've never known anyone tighter. And it's like that drug commercial from the 90s. Like, I learned it from watching you. <laughs> but, you know, my mother and I are very similar, though, that, like, if I want something, though, I'm going to go get it. And that's the end of that question. You know, like, if I really want it, I'm going to be like, how much is the interest rate on that credit card? I don't care. I want that TV. Mm. So, Give it to me, right? Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. Like, when I was 26, 27, and I was like, I'm really going to make some serious movies. My mother would give me money so that I could keep living, but she never gave me money to make movie, to like right. make the movies. But, like, I had no credit. I had burned all of my credit when I was 22, and it's just now good enough that I have my own credit cards. So I wanted to buy an expensive camera to make real movies that I could sell. The first movie I ever made with my expensive camera was the one that sold to England and sold to France and all these places. I literally had to be like, Mom, can I have your credit card? Like, I'll pay the payments and all this stuff but i need i need credit so i can buy this thing and my right. mother was like yes you can oh wow that's some um and that's i some love right there you're gonna give your credit and it, and it was one of these 12 months same as cash on a on a camera so i'm paying like 500 600 a month to make that deadline and i paid it a month early off yeah i bet she was proud of you too she was and she did that for me again one other time i but it was a smaller thing. And now, like, I'm, I get my own loans when I need business stuff. Oh, you know? see, that need nobody. Now, the interest rates <laughs> suck, but I get my own loans. <laughs> so so when you say you make a living doing this, how good is the living? Like, people oh. say filmmakers, all different levels of filmmaking. Oh, this is fun because Americans, we just don't like to talk about money. Oh, I don't you know? care. Yeah. Oh, but no, that's fun. Um, I like to talk about money. I'm a little uncomfortable, but I will say I've done, I've done it full time for four years. Okay. And every year has been consistently better than the year before. Okay. Last year, I made more money than I've ever made in my life doing anything. Although that's been kind of consistent, but I've always had crap jobs. I worked at a, a television station and I hated the job and the money wasn't good. And, you know, I worked at Spencer's Gifts. I didn't hate the job, but the money wasn't very good. I worked at a corporate mover. I actually liked everything about the corporate mover, but the but there wasn't a lot of work. But I've, I've always said, like, nobody ever paid me what I was worth till I started working for myself. And even so, not quite. So last year I did I did pretty well. As of like five, six months ago, I now I rent a house by myself, which is the first time in my entire life I haven't had roommates. And I'm eking by. The tricky thing is you just don't know how much money you're going to make in a year. Right. So, you know, I may be saying like right now, like I live on my own. I got a dog. That was a big deal. I got a dog. Yeah, you love your dog afford, too. I love my dog, but I could afford to have a dog. Right. Um, And, you know, all these things. But like if the wind blows poorly in November, I may be looking for a roommate. But you're living on your own terms, though. Yeah, exactly. You and do no, what and you I'm want good to do. With that. I'm good with that. I think most people would call my living reasonable. I would call my living extremely comfortable because I'm so tight. Right. You know, so mm -hmm. I'm, I went two years ago. I went on my first vacation in my entire life. I, I really? went two days, two days, a Wednesday and a Thursday, because those were the cheapest days to rent a cabin. I rented a cabin in Hillsboro and I and I kayaked for two days. You are cheap, aren't you? I know, right? I know, right? But you know what? I didn't even ask my girlfriend at the time to split it with me. So I'm not that oh, bad a guy. You know, I, I treat... So-and-so uh, you. Well, she paid for half of the food. Um, so... <laughs> but, Isn't love grand? I know, right? um, <laughs> you didn't marry that girl? No, no, we didn't. No, no, not at all. <laughs> but, but no, so uh, that's, but that's to give you a context. Like, to me, because I came up from humble beginnings. Okay, this will give you a perfect example. Every day that when I was in school, you had, I think it was like three or $4 for lunch, right? right. $3, whatever for lunch. My mother probably doesn't know this. I don't know if I ever revealed this to her, but I never ate lunch. Henrico is gonna let us know what ha happened with the lunch money his mama gave him in just a second. But first, I wanted to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast and is brought to you by Dayton.com, your number one source for what to do, what to know, and what to love about the Miami Valley. One thing I hope you love is my colleague, Mark Fisher. Mark covers Dayton dining like no one else. Keep up with him on Facebook. He's easy to find as Mark Fisher DDN. Now back to what happened with that lunch money. I kept the three or four dollars and at the end of the week, I would buy like the caro syrup to make the fake blood and I would go make my movies in the backyard. I didn't eat lunch for three or four years that I was in school and just kept the money. And, and saved it to, to buy supplies. To buy supplies for movies, buy tapes. You just ate at home when you get home or whatever. Yeah. That's like thinking forward. Like, what can I do with this money besides buy like a crummy sandwich, right? And and my mother's opinion, not much has changed. I'm that same way. I'm always thinking like, what can I sacrifice? For instance, remember when I told you about the uh, the camera, uh, about buying a camera and having to pay like five, six hundred dollars a month just to own it. I had just had my hours doubled at my television job. And I literally for a year didn't have any improvement in my living situation. 
because instead I paid for the camera because literally that was like half of the income I was making really? was on the camera payment. I had gotten double my hours. So instead of making about give or take five or $600 a month, I was making double that, but I wasn't because I was paying five or $600 a month on the camera. So why are movies so important to you? Oh, okay. I can answer that. I like, I, this is one of the reasons I was excited when you asked me because you always ask questions that I, I like when people dig very well, much. Yeah, well, you. I'm an open book. You just yeah. have to, you just have to flip to the right page. Growing up being a weird kid, growing up in a single parent household where, you know, your mom hustles. The majority of my memories from until I was maybe five or six are my mother picking me up at 10 p.m. from the babysitter. She would work her Reynolds job, which she hoped would one day turn into something, and it did. My mother's literally like receptionist to management. Oh, wow. In 30 years, you know, incredible. Incredible. I may have, or maybe she and was- It often doesn't happen that way. No, well, because you have to have the stick to and the voraciousness, and you can't be afraid to speak up for yourself, and that's my mother. So when you grow up that way, where there's a lot of loneliness in that, I mean, and, and no fault. I love my mother. I would, and, and I hope if she's listening to this, she knows that I appreciate it. Oh, it's clear I you appreciate her. But I never once look back and think like, I sure wish my mom had cooked more dinners. No, I think back and I go like, what a sacrifice to know that your little boy had to like fall asleep watching Nick at night in someone else's house so that you could give him a better life. And she did. I mean, she did. I remember when um, we were doing so well that when I turned 18, she gave me a car. Not a crazy nice car, but a car. Right. And I didn't, it didn't click. I didn't understand. Because I grew up with the idea, like, you can't just give someone a car. And my mom was like, yeah, I can. I bet it felt good to her to give you that car. Too. I, I bet, bet she, was, she went to that and bought that car and she probably lit her life up. Well, this is a side note and it remind me to get back to why I love movies. But this is just to oh, tell I you will. the kind of person my mother is. <laughs> I'm about to take my driver's exam, right? I'm like two weeks, three weeks away from taking my driver's exam. And my mom pulls up to the house in a bright green Volkswagen Beetle. A 2000, and this is like 2005. A 2000 Volkswagen Beetle. And, I, and I'm like, whoa, what, what's that about? My mom's like, bought another car. And I'm like, cool. Because she had a Ford Explorer. So mm -hmm. it was like a totally different kind of car. And for those two weeks, my mom like drove the, the Volkswagen to work and, and back and all this stuff. And never once did it cross my mind that that car was mine. Oh, wow. I thought that because my mom, I knew my mom was doing better because she wasn't working other you extra jobs. You almost made me cry. God, that's so sweet. But my mother, so my mother would drive the car, you know, back and forth. And my, and like, literally, because when I said, like, are you selling the Explorer? She's like, no, I just like have an option. Like, I want to drive another car. You know? and, and I'll, I'll never, now you're going to make me cry. I'll never forget, though, like, so when I got, I was about to get my license or mm -hmm. I just got my license. I can't remember which. I had asked, I, I was like, so, you know, like all nervous and sheepish. I was like, so like when you're not driving the Volkswagen, do you think like I could use it to get around, you know, or, you know, just to you borrow mm -hmm. it when you're not using it. And my mom just looked at me and went, it's, it's your car. <laughs> like, I thought it was pretty obvious. I bought the most gaudy, gaudy car that totally fits your personality. Like, it's yours. This is your car. So, yes, you can drive it whenever you want and she was like i was just driving it because it was a fun change of pace to go to work and back yeah. until you got your license Aww. and i drove that car i think it had forty thousand miles on it i drove that car till the day of its death at two hundred and sixteen thousand miles oh that's awesome i kept that car that car went all over the east eastern part of the united states uh as far south as uh, as atlanta georgia as far north as worcester massachusetts oh no, no no as far north as toronto ontario and canada uh, I took it everywhere. I drove that thing everywhere. My mother, in my opinion, had taught me such humbleness that I didn't expect anything. I really did hope that mom would just let me borrow that car so I could like go to movie shoots I wanted to do or, right. go, or go pick up supplies for movies. But I just remember that look of her. She was like, this is your car. Why would you think you're about to get your license? I buy a second car for fun. That's Why would so I? funny. Yeah. And I, but I believed her. I really thought that like she just because I because I was like, well, you know, it's her money. You right, know, like she can she, do what she, she wants her she, money. She, she doesn't have two cars. I mean, whatever. What's your mom's name? Karen. Whatever, Karen. You have yeah. two cars, Karen. Yeah, whatever yeah. It is. Happy for you, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. So it's it's yeah. so that's my mother, you know. But that's her sense of humor too. Uh -huh. She like was teasing me, but she thought she thought that there was no way I could be so stupid. I guess <laughs> that you wouldn't put it just, together. To just but yeah, if you, like, if you never had a, anything much, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't well, think about it, right? Because I mean, and I I had not asked for a car because right. I I think I guess as a as a 
kid, I thought that that was too much. Right. And I'm sure of your classmates, they, a lot of them probably had. They drunk. were getting cars and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and what blew my mind wasn't that they were getting cars. It was that they, they expected it. Right. They were just kind of like, oh, yeah, I got a car now. My mom got me a gently used car. You know, my mom was always like always impressed that I respected it so much, you know, that it lasted 10 or 11 years. It was that first new bug, you know, the mm-hmm. new beetle. And uh, I ran that thing until it could not until it could not drive anymore. Mom Traded it in and got a Prius. Boom! I am a middle-aged woman. <laughs> so, but anyway, to go back to, to love of movies, when you grow up like that, you, there are things that you find comfort in, and one of them, the biggest one, was movies. You know, watching them on TV. The statute of limitations has passed. I can say this. My mother was the queen of stealing cable, so we didn't have a lot. But I had a television set with all the premium channels in my bedroom, Boom. man. Boom. I watched movies. I had movie nights. I had a much older sister. So when she was around, we were watching Nightmare on Elm Street VHSs and stuff because that she owned them, you know, and because she was older, she didn't <laughs> yeah. have them. So like, I was. Oh, you own those. Yeah. Wow. So I'd be like eight and she'd be whatever the math is, 16, mm, 16 or whatever. Uh-huh. And, and, and I would be and we'd stay up really late at night and watch scary movies and I'd get scared senseless and my mother liked horror movies my mother didn't vehemently like horror movies but like if we were sitting there and TNT said like uh, Halloween was on my mom was like flip it right over my mother she sat me down once and just said do you understand the difference between reality and make believe and I said yes absolutely and she was like then you can watch whatever you want I totally did not understand <laughs> I had so many nightmares and so many yeah, see, I, can, I don't know how you deal with the scary movies because I never have been able to. They still scare me. I mean, I'm I'm very oh. scared of them. Um, I recently showed a friend Evil Dead for the first time. I have a I have like a, a theater in my house. I have a 120 inch screen with a HD projector, surround sound. I showed her Evil Dead for the first time, and I jumped and screamed with her. And I've seen that movie like 30, 40, 50 times. Um, so. But that was where it really it really began, you know, and I'd watch movies with my mom on occasion. Mm-hmm. But then, like, my mother was a young woman. When I was a teenager, she was early 40s. She, you know, went on dates and went out with friends. So then it became, you know, what do you want from Blockbuster? And here's a pizza. Like, she had her life. Yeah, she had a life. And she deserved it. Mm-hmm. Deservedly so. So, you know, my mom... My mom would try to get off work early enough that she had time to run me to Blockbuster with her so I could pick out a movie or two. When she was getting ready to leave, she would, like, put, you know, $15 on the table. And then I'd be like, uh, can I get chicken kickers, too? And she'd, like, put another $5 bill on the table and order the pizza, you know. And it was so good. Um, my mom, I was, I was, like, 14, 13, 14. I wasn't that young to be home alone. My mom would be, like, had instructions, like, when the pizza gets there or the Chinese food gets there or whatever, you open the door and as soon as you open the door and you say hi to the person, then you turn away and go, Mom, the food's here. Uh, and then yeah, you yeah. turn back and hand them the movie. <laughs> Just in case they were a murderer. Yeah, yeah. She was thinking outside. Karen was thinking about her baby. <laughs> she, Mom always had an angle worked out to make sure that I was going to be safe. So, oh, that's funny. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, like, you'd think maybe or maybe not that those would be sad memories a little bit like home alone vhs you know pizza super good memories super happy memories because my mother took an active interest in the things that interested me because she wanted me to be happy so like the idea that she would she would call me on the phone on her cell phone you know her ancient you know corporate cell phone at blockbuster and be like George Romero, why do I know that name? I'd be like, he directed Night of the Living Dead. I was like, well, there's a movie here with his name on it. Do you want to watch that? I'd be like, please rent that movie, Mom. Please rent that movie. And then she'd come home with the new George Romero movie, and I would watch it and eat pizza while she'd go out and have a good time. You know, so those are some of my fondest memories. So movies became, at first they were a comfort, and then they became my friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if I was feeling lonely or bored or whatever, I'd put on Nightmare on Elm Street 4 so many times because it became like a friend to me. So movies became friends to me. I don't know why, but it, it became like, I want to do that. And when it really all changed was when I was 12 years old, my mother got me my camcorder. And on top of that, I saw this cable. Uh, I saw that I was watching the cable access channel, CATV, the Miami Valley Communication Council's channel. And they had little PSAs that would say, like, want to make your own show? Call this number. Uh, so okay. I'm a little 12 year old boy calling up, you know, hello. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I saw uh, that you can that you can have your own show. Is there is there an age restriction? And they'd be like, uh, No, there isn't. I'd be like, Oh, okay, thank you. And I hung up and I called my mom and went, Mom, Mom, they said that any age can take the classes. So that's funny. So I went, took the classes. I started working under a uh, local filmmaker uh, named Andy Cop, who passed away about five five or six years ago now. He was my mentor up until his death. 
um, and you know, best friend, father figure in many Aww. ways. Uh, that's a whole other side. We could, we, if we talk about that, we'll talk about. It. We'll, it'd be hours, and you'd have to charge me, uh, you know, like a therapist. <laughs> but uh, and he was the first person. He had made one feature at that point called The Mutilation Man, which he wouldn't let me watch because I was too young. But I was like, wow, you. I think I'm too young for that one yeah, too. Yeah, right. Uh, but I was like, wow, you 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 made a movie and all this stuff, and he'd be like, well, go make your own movie, and I was like. I'm allowed? And he was like, yeah. He was a huge influence. And I made a ton of little cable access shows. And then then I started making movies. Started dutifully cranking out these movies and selling them at conventions, selling them at school. And that was the big difference. Like, kids would make movies in their backyard. I would make a movie, but it had a poster. And it had a DVD box. And it had, like, you know. And it had commentaries. It had commentaries? I I learned how to author, to program DVD movies so that they could have commentaries and menus and everything. So you were not kidding around? When I was like 15, no, when I was like 15 years old. In fact, when I was 16 years old, I started doing it freelance for money because I could do it. So I actually signed. I remember at one point I signed a contract and I did four movies that were on the shelves of Blockbuster when I was a teenager. Oh, that's crazy. As an author, not as a producer, director or anything, but, you know, because I was a child. But it was really funny. (laughs) It was really funny. All the uh, freelance agreements had to be co-signed by my mother because I couldn't sign a document. So when you say freelance, I mean you wrote for somebody else. Oh, no, no. uh, This was um, like uh, post-production work. Like I would... People, when, when a movie's made, it has to be programmed onto a disc, you know, so that when you put it in, it shows a trailer and then it hit, you hit play and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's done by a programmer. So I did that as a teenager to make extra money because, well, I, I really just undercut the competition because people would be like, I don't want to hire a 16 year old. I'd be like, I'll do it for half what the other people are. And they'd be wow. like, welcome aboard. You know? Come on, Sonny. Yeah, right. yeah. I'll so, give you a typewriter. Yeah. Right. So I would, I would, I would author these movies to DVD. And then they were on the show. And then I could go rent them. It was crazy. They that were, is crazy. You know, at such a young age. Well, I mean, movies have, have meant everything to me for so long. And they still they still do. I go to the movies. I try to go to the movies once or twice a week. I watch movies all the time. I built a theater in my house so that I could watch movies as I feel they, they should be seen at least some of the time. Yeah, it's always been a big thing to me. And it's always been a comfort and a joy. I remember having a hardcore conversation with myself. I suffer from depression and anxiety disorder, stuff like that. And I remember having a very intense conversation with myself when I had made a movie called Bleeding Through, which was really a depressing movie, but I was very proud of it, but it was a very depressing movie. And when it was done, it was a very unpleasant experience making it. And I made one more movie called Depression the Movie, which was a comedy, but I had actually said to myself, like, if this sucks, if I hate making this, I'm never doing it again. And after I made it, I started to go like, whoa, this was great experience. It was such a successful movie. Like the screenings were so successful and the DVD sales were so successful um, that I paid off all my credit card debt. All my, I mean, like, I was about to go to court and I was able to settle out of court with this money I made from these. Wow. And all of a sudden I was like, OK, you know, I had to have a serious conversation with myself and I had to look in the mirror and be like, OK, is making movies the only way you'll be happy? And I was like, sure. But the harder question was do you want to be happy? That was the hard question. The very difficult, you know, ugly cry answer after all of the battling in my head, you know, cause you know how bad the early twenties are. Right. I mean, you're like looking down a void half the time trying to go like, do I, should I exist? Why do I exist? Right. Like, you know, you're all those things. That was like right when I was maybe 24, 25. And all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I want to be happy. Well, then I was like, well then pick up that camera and get to it, boy. What are you doing? What are you doing? Talking to yourself in the mirror right now. Right. Go. Go forth. So then I made uh, another movie and another and another and another and another and another. And the train is pretty much never stopped. Who are the people who are watching your movies? What are they like? That's an incredible question because I don't know anymore. I used to know. I mean, I have a grassroots fan base that literally they are the reason that the doors can stay open. When I put out a limited edition Blu-ray of my original short films and they buy copies that is making rent between gigs you know Mm -hmm. that is is keeping the pirate ship sailing you know but i've been now i sell movies to people who rep them to other countries and rep them to television and i don't know anything uh about it like i'm so used to being the only marketer right now i only market to an extent i market to a niche audience and then the bigger marketing is done by other people so I don't know. I mean, it used to be I thought, oh, like horror fans. But then it's like, well, your romantic comedy didn't go to horror fans. And right. it, made, it made good money. Your Western didn't go to horror fans. And it made really good money. Like, so I don't know anymore. You, I, you were talking about the Horn Dog Beach Party one. That's not like horror. That's a movie I produced. Yeah, I, I produced But that's not it. horror, though, is it? No, it's a, it's a screwball comedy. Raunchy little comedy. Like it's, an 80s style kind of yeah. like. You can kick back, shut your brain off. You know, pizza doesn't hurt. 
Like Porky's kind of... Yeah, and just yeah. watch it and have a good time. That was my first film as strictly as a producer. It's available now on Amazon Prime, but it's not under its original title. It's under the title Beach Babe Bingo. Which, <laughs> not a bad title, considering I had to make that up while frustrated and without sleep. And oh, let's go Beach Babe, babe Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Mm, right? Uh, yeah. But, you know, if you want to... It's the... In the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, it's the kind of thing you'll like if you like that kind of thing. Right. It's like when I did a Bulldog for Christmas and it played on television in England and I got tons of hate mail um, from people because the trick is if you get a lot of hate mail, you've reached a large audience. That's kind of just the the rule of thumb because haters are more vocal than lovers. Oh, for sure. No doubt about it. So if you get like 20 hate letters, that means you probably have a lot of audience out there. You know what I get more often than not is love letters. Well, good though. I mean, it's good like, for I, you. It's, it's the good ones. For the I get hate mail, but truth is, I get far more people who send me a nice note, say thank you for this or whatever, thank you for this column you wrote or whatever. So I get far more positivity. Mm-hmm. But it is the negativity that sometimes you remember. Oh yeah, here's the thing. Like I did a convention in Akron recently, and I shared my booth with um, Rachel Rodolfi, who's a Dayton artist who does oh. paintings and 3D printing and needle felting. She's a genius. She does everything. And we shared a table space. No one would ever walk up to her table and look at one of her paintings or one of her 3D sculptures or anything and just go like, eh, it's no good and just set it down. But people will walk up to me and pick up a Blu-ray case, look at it, look on the other side and be like, yeah, it doesn't look good. And just drop it in front of me. It hurts. It does hurt. It's your art. You know, now that being said, if I didn't want my art to be slammed, I wouldn't put it into the world. Right. And I have a thick skin, but there's a point, you know, like I've had more than one reviewer, not, not Amazon commenter, reviewer, tell me like to kill myself. Uh, Oh yeah, I bet you have actually, because those nerd boys can be kind of... They can get a bit vindictive. Mm -hmm. Does it hurt? Absolutely. A lot. A ton. I live with it and I don't need to go after them. You know, I don't need to insult them back. I don't need to say anything. I just uh, keep trucking, but... Sometimes but, it feels good to go after him, though. No, no, the problem is that you have to fight your ego, and, and since yeah. I work in the arts, ego fighting is a big part of my day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, so I have to fight my ego, because my ego says, like, but wouldn't it be great to hit him with this zinger? And I'm like, yeah, for a minute, but then I look petty. No, no, I don't look petty. I am petty. Well, and, you are petty, <laughs> but it still feels good every once in a while just know. to zing back. I've, I've, you know, what, my favorite are, like, the trolls on YouTube will be, like, calling me all these names and stuff, because I always respond with, like, one-word answers, which really makes them oh, mad, because yeah. they want so much attention. So, like, you're such a this, and F you, and you need to shove your movie up your blah, blah, blah. And then I, resp- I just reply with, nah. I, what I like to do is give a gift, like a like oh a, yeah yeah yeah, like a random like. Yeah. Sometimes the gifts don't even make sense. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, yeah, pl- please accept this photo of Russia as my entire response to what you have to say. Uh, I do love absurdities. So you take those with a grain of salt as best you can, but that doesn't mean like I would be lying to you, and I am I'm, I'm trying to be as candid as I can humanly muster. I would be lying if I didn't say that I didn't read like somebody say like you know his films are so bad I wish he would die. When you have been sitting in a dark room in your house, alone, ignoring people you love because you have to mix audio on a movie, and you take one break, and the one human interaction you get for your day is kill yourself. Yeah, I cried. And then I had a fresca, and I put on my big boy panties, and I got back to work. So I'm not going to pretend I'm I'm bulletproof. I have thick skin thanks to... um, you know, being bullied in school and stuff. I have thick skin, but thick skin doesn't mean it bounces off. It, right. means, it just means it doesn't hit an artery, you know, like it doesn't end you, but it, right. but it hurts. But that being said, you know what? Give me all the hate you want because you'll never stop me because I learned that I'm so tenacious. I just will never stop short of a bullet. And you better place that bullet well. And it better be high caliber. And they better get to their bullet before you get to your bullet. Before, before I get to mine. <laughs> right. You better believe it. Um, I, so I directed a, a scene on this project I've been working on and we were shooting in the middle of the wilderness. And I was like, and I, and it was just a small crew. It was like a makeup, makeup artist, me, a couple actors or whatever. And I was like, you know, I better carry a gun because we're in the middle of nowhere. So I was like, I better carry a, like a good, powerful gun. So I, I carried a 10 millimeter, which is good for wildlife. 
and I carried it out. I just carried it out because I was like, why deal with tucking it in my pants and everything? I mean, we're all we're all friends here. But my buddy Dave, who was working crew, he was like, I I don't want to see the world go back to the days when you direct without a gun on your hip. He was like, it was there was something so bizarrely macho about you about <laughs> action and you're just resting your hand on a gun and i was like and i was like it's like peck and paw this is like old school directing like guys got a gun yeah yeah that's the thing too I, people probably wouldn't see you carrying guns at all but you taught me you well you, you didn't teach me how to shoot that's still i showed nice. you how to you shoot. showed me how to shoot yeah. which is crazy yeah um yeah. And people I, wouldn't look at you and go this guy goes to the rain i uh i have a friend an old biker buddy i mean not like a biker buddy from when i was a biker but an old guy who was a biker and uh, I mentioned that I a concealed carry holder and uh, that I carry. And the guy just looked me up and, and we've been friends for 15 years, looked me up and down and went, well, if that ain't the friggin' definition of the element of surprise, I don't know what is. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Thank you. Because I wear like pajama pants. and But there's there's a, there might be a Glock 26 in there. Never so know. You never know. <laughs> You're feeling day. lucky, punk. You know? um, <laughs> but... You know, uh, and actually, though, to, to be honest, like concealed carry is great when you're on a set because sometimes you have like twenty thousand dollars worth of equipment and you're by yourself with it. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm producing this movie that's going to be coming out very soon. The title is A Raunchy Christmas Story. A it Raunchy was, Christmas Story. It was okay. directed by Monica and Maria Biltz. This is actually the first time I've ever talked about it publicly, and it probably won't be out by the time this airs. It's an awesome indie comedy. It's super fun, super weird. It's the the Built Sisters directorial debut. I'm so proud of them for making their first feature and I got to have a small part in it. It was made in Wichita. Um, they emailed me as their producer. I told them if there's anything I can do to make it easier on my end, let me know. And one of the things they often need is stock footage, you know, footage of something that they don't have time to get footage of. So they said, well, we need an apartment complex that looks kind of ghetto and we need an apartment complex that looks nice uh, at night. And I was in Philadelphia on business at the time. So I hopped in my car with my buddy Michelle and said, take me to Cracktown. So we went to West Philadelphia until we drove to where it looked like we just should not get out of the car, pulled over, and I got out of the car with my $3,000 photo camera that takes video. And I'm sitting there filming as people are yelling around us. It's a really rough area. Right. Filming it, all I'm thinking is like, there's a Glock 26 in my pants. Just get the footage. And all I could think was like, they're never in a million years going to think that this footage was like, the results of their producer, like, standing on the street with a gun and a camera, just like... <laughs> so I told the producer of that movie that, and he said that every time he watches the cut, he bursts out laughing every time that shot comes up. And they're like, why are you laughing? He's like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some other time. Hope you have time to, for me to paint the whole picture. Is that what's next for you then? There's a lot of stuff coming up. I've got some more limited edition Blu-rays coming out. That film, I can go ahead and say, it'll be on Amazon Prime really soon. And then it's going to come out on DVD, Blu-ray combo, like right around Christmas, probably on Black Friday. I'll probably announce it and, and release it. I'm really proud of it. it. Even though I don't usually do this, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I uh, I helped and encouraged two female filmmakers to make their first movie. I gave them the excuse. Sometimes that's all you need is an excuse to, to get out there. And yeah. Do it. So I'm very proud of them because I think they did a kick butt job for the first time. Proud my name's on it. I'm proud to get it out into the world. I hope I can get a lot of people to watch it. But it's been cool because I've taken a backseat. Keep a very long story that has, an, that has a non-disclosure agreement involved short. I'm currently tied up in a very large project and I cannot direct anything else until it's complete. Not out of contract so much as respect. Mm. It's a huge job and I'm not going to start directing something else when I owe them work. So I've been producing. I also produced a film in Indiana called The Girl in the Crawl Space, which is just about done. I don't know when that's going to come out. I'm really proud of that one too. I think it turned out incredible. It's directed by John Oak Dalton, his first time as a director. I've definitely found some trouble and some joy to being a producer. So maybe next year I'll produce a couple more movies and on top of directing a billion movies, which is my plan for for world domination it's just a billion movies somebody said like what is your goal really and i was like i have to make a million movies and then i can die <laughs> it's like forever night i don't know if you remember that that show that trashy show from sci-fi channel in the 90s forever night like once he's helped enough people he may finally die <laughs> that's, once that's you make me. enough movies like yeah. one million and done and then it'll be like the age of ultron or whatever <laughs> like at the at the end of the new avengers <laughs> i'll just, oh, I'll just dissipate <laughs> 
<laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, I really desperately wish I could tell you what I've been working on all year because it's like the biggest story there is. Oh, really? Uh, in my career, but I can't. I can't. I just can't talk about it until they tell me to. Well, it's coming up. You'll be able to talk to me later. Oh, yeah. No, no. I will. The moment I'm able to talk about it publicly, I'll holler at you. Maybe we'll do something special about it. Cause, yeah. Because it's, it's a pretty big deal, in especially for Dayton, to be doing being done in Dayton. It's a pretty big nice. deal. Nice. I want to know about it. I can't wait to tell you, but I have to legally wait to tell you. <laughs> That's the thing people don't warn you about. Like, be an artist, they say. Be a filmmaker, they say. You'll love it if you love talking to lawyers. <laughs> Thanks a lot for coming. I oh, appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. And we, we didn't get to a lot of stuff. Like, well, I'd be happy to come back anytime yeah. you want. One time you told me your, your father's a gangster or something. We can talk oh, about man. that. I don't know how much we can talk about that. He's a, bike, <laughs> a biker. I don't know how much we can talk about that. We can talk really vaguely about it. <laughs> told you Henrico was an interesting dude. You can find his work on Amazon Prime and on his website, handflick.com. It's like Netflix, but with Henrico. You can also find that column I wrote about firing guns with him on Dayton.com and Dayton Daily News. The What Had Happened Was podcast is produced by me, Amelia Robinson, and the WHIO Radio Studios. The show's artwork is by my buddy Troy Lyman. The music is from Palm Leveled Soul. Don't forget to subscribe and rate this show wherever you get podcasts. If you know someone who should be featured on this podcast, hit me up at arobinson at DaytonDailyNews.com. You can spell it out. Or you can find me on Facebook or Twitter. Until next time, may the hustle blood flow through you like a mighty river. <laughs>